Hi, welcome to the New Story Church podcast. We hope that this week's message encourages you and brings you closer to Jesus. We're in week three of a series called The Father. And what we're doing in this series is we're discovering together who God the Father is and trying to grow closer to God the Father because we, as those who follow Christ, we believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We believe that our God is three in one. And we talk a a lot about Jesus, but sometimes we have a disconnect with, well, who exactly is the Father? And so we're going to talk about the Father in January. In February, we're doing a series on the Son, and then in March, we're doing a series on the Holy Spirit. I said, hey, let's let's start off 2022 covering covering the Trinity and let's let's get to know who God the Father is. And so if you're here this week, this is actually part two of last week's message. I kind of ended on a cliffhanger, but I'm going to bring you up to the speed the best that I can. And so we can move together because what we did last week and what we're doing this week is we're discussing the like the violent portrait of God that we see in the Old Testament. You see, I've come to believe that one of the reasons that many people have a distance with God the Father is I've heard so many people say this to me. They'll start reading the Old Testament and they'll see God command something that's pretty violent and they'll say, okay, I'm just, you know, I'm going to go back to the New Testament. I'm going to go back to Jesus because some of this stuff is pretty intense. And we looked at some of those examples last week. Some of the examples where God said, hey, go utterly, Israel, go utterly destroy that group of people, men, women, and children. Just destroy all of them. You're like, whoa, but that's that's a little dark. And then we looked at passages like Jeremiah 19.9 when he said, God said, I'm going to cause them to eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. You're like, it says that? Yeah, go to Jeremiah 19.9. Or Hosea 13.6 when he's talking about judging Samaria. And he says, uh, hey, you know, uh, I'm going to cause uh, the little ones to be dashed into pieces and the pregnant mother's wombs to be whipped, ripped open. And you're like, whoa, yeah, Hosea 13, 16, it's there. Jeremiah 19, 9, it's there. And you're like, you're reading this and it's kind of like, whoa, okay. There's, there seems to be what exactly is going on here. And so what I did last week, and you can go back and watch it, is we talked about different approaches that people take to attempt to reconcile the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament. We talked about the apologetics approach. We talked about the phases approach. We, we did a bunch of different approaches. And some of these approaches are, are respectable approaches that, that people take. And, and some of them, you, you might even have some of the approaches that I mentioned last week. But for some, those of us who are still questioning, I, I want to share with you the approach that I've come to. And I want to say this, I reserve the right to be wrong here. I could be very wrong. I, as I was digging into this, I was like, there's a lot of messiness here. But as I was reading, I I came across the work of Dr. Greg Boyd, and I was like, a lot of what he's saying here is making a lot of sense to the way the scriptures are laid out and to what God has in his word for us. And so I'm going to present to you that approach today. We have the the freedom to disagree. We may not come to the same approach on this, but here's what I do know is I know that God the Father deeply loves every single one of us and he wants us to know him and he doesn't want issues like this to keep us from knowing him and seeking him and drawing close to him. And so we're confronting an issue like this because we want to know him and we don't want to run from him. We want to draw close to him. And so I'm going to be stealing some language from Dr. Boyd today and some different things and some reading that I've done. And like I said, I I could be wrong. And I, I also want to say, I am so very thankful for this church because I talk to other pastors who wrestle with difficult theological concepts like this sometimes. 
And they, and they come to places and they're like, I could never share that with my congregation. I don't know how they would react. I, wouldn't, I, I could never do that. And while we still challenge here sometimes one another, what I'm really thankful for is that we have a congregation who is just so very full of grace and you're so full of understanding. And thank you for allowing us to have these kinds of conversations. Thank you for being a church where we say, hey, we can talk about some of these things and we're not going to grab out our torch and pitchforks or go to social media and just start slamming people all the time. I'm just really thankful for the grace that is in this congregation. So thank you so much for that. But we're going to dig into this. These violent portraits of God we see in the Old Testament. And one of the reasons we're doing this is because we want to know who God the Father is. But Jesus also says this. Jesus says this in John 10, 30. He said, I and the Father are one. Well, Jesus and the Father are one. And in John 14, 9, he said this, he who has seen me has seen the Father. So, so I and the Father are one, and he who has seen me has seen the Father. But then you have some of these violent portraits I was describing, and as we said last week, Raymond Schwager, who's a scholar, said that there are a thousand times, about a thousand times or more, where God commands some type of violence. And so it pause, makes us pause for a moment and say, okay, Jesus is one with the Father, but Jesus is laying down his life for his enemies, and the Father's saying, hey, Israel, go destroy your enemies. How do we bring all of this together and reconcile this? And it causes us to ask this question, how is the one who laid down his life for his enemies one? with the one, God the Father, who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies. How do we bring this together? How, how, how is the one who laid down his life for his enemies one with the one who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? And that's a question worth asking, and it's something that we're trying to piece and figure out together. And so what I'm going to do today is we're going to kind of go into some uncharted territory. This, it might feel a little bit different than normal. We're going to go into some uncharted territory. I'm going to present some concepts today. We're going to have three different concepts that we're going to look at. We're going to progressive. We're going to go through one pro, uh, concept, progress to the next one, the next one, and then we're going to kind of tie them all together and hopefully move towards answering that question. How is the one who laid down his life for his enemies one with the one who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? But before I jump into those concepts, I want to start with a story. Part of this story is true, part of this story is false. So let's start with the true part first. Neil Friedman, many of you know him. Who here knows Neil? Anybody? Yeah, come on. Let me hear some noise for Neil Friedman. He's a true hero. Yes, we love Neil here. So Neil's, Neil's like the executive pastor here at New Story. He does so much work. We love Neil. And about four and a half years ago, when I was at the gym with Neil and we were dreaming and talking about New Story and what we were going to do and what we felt God was calling us to do, one of the things Neil shared with me is that he had a heart to help homeless people. He's like, God's placed this on my heart. I don't know what this is going to look like, but this is something that you know I'm passionate about. And so we started having conversations about that. And while we as New Story have not even yet begun to scratch the surface of what it would look like for us to help the homeless community, we, I've always had in the back of my mind that that's something that Neil is passionate about. That's something that Neil wants to work on. That's an issue that he would like to address and that we as a church one day will most likely jump into do, doing something with that. And as I've known Neil over the years, not only did I know that that was a passion of his, that's something that was on his heart, but I also know that Neil's a hard worker, Neil is a man of integrity. Neil is, Neil is just, he's, he's great. He, Neil is Neil's one of those people you talk about, you say, he's the real deal. So imagine with me, if you would, for just a moment, that it's, it's, let's say it's Black Friday, and I decide to go to Target, 
And from a distance, I see Neil, because you may or may not know this about Neil. He, he loves Target. I mean, he's, he's always at Target. Right now, he's under his breath saying, I hate you, Scott, because he doesn't actually love Target. But I'm just going to keep saying that he loves Target. So, so let's say Neil is at Target on Black Friday. I'm at Target, and there's a massive crowd of people, because uh, this is pre-COVID or whatever, or, but there's this huge crowd of people, and people are trampling one another, trying to get the best deal at Target. And and I, from a distance, I'm leaving or walking in or whatever. I see this massive crowd of people and I see Neil from a distance. And outside of Target, I see a homeless man with a cup and a hat and he's there collect, trying to collect money from people. And what if I see Neil walk up to this homeless man, say, and Neil just says to him, get out of my way. And he slaps the cup out of his hand, punches the guy in the face, knocks the hat off his head and shoves him on the ground. I say, oh my goodness, this is not the Neil Friedman that I know. What is happening here? Now, the the more pessimistic side of me could say, ah, Neil must have been lying to me all of this time. The great deceiver, Neil Friedman. (laughs) But the part of me that knows Neil, that has a relationship with Neil, that's seen Neil be an amazing person to so many people, I would have to say to myself, there must be something else going on. On the surface, this looks disturbing. On the surface, it looks like he hurt a person and he also might be a hypocrite. But you know what? I know Neil and I know who he is. So I am going to assume that something else is going on. When we get to some of these violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, he says, hey, go utterly destroy all these people, uh, you know, man, woman, and child, to do it all, you know, shed blood, do, do, take care of it. But when we see some of these portraits, as we read in Deuteronomy last week or in Numbers or in Joshua, I, would, I want to contend that we need to look beyond the surface of something that just looks ugly and disturbing, and we have to go beneath the surface and see that something else is going on. On the surface, it looks ugly, but, but beyond that, we're going to see that something else is going on. On the surface, Neil going after this person, it looked ugly, but we're going to see that something else was going on. So concept number one I want us to go with today, if you're taking notes, you, know, you might want to write this down. We encourage people to take notes. You can do it on your phone. You can do it in a journal. Whatever works for you. If you're at home, I don't know how you're doing it, but either way. So concept number one, God's in the Ain. What is the Ain? The Ain stands for the ancient Near East. In the ancient Near East, this was the world that Israel lived in. Israel lived in the ancient Near East. And because they lived in the ancient Near East, there was an understanding they had of the world and how the world worked. Much like every one of us, we we live as Americans in 2021. We have an understanding of the world and how the world works. We have a way that we see things. We have predispositions towards certain things. We have an understanding of the world and how it works. Well, in ancient Israel, in the ancient Near East, an understanding of the world was this, is that if you went into battle and you took out another group of people, it was your warrior God who delivered you. In fact, even the other pagan nations would have this understanding of a warrior God. It was how they saw the world. It was how they viewed their gods, that their God was always the one who led them into battle to slaughter other people. Uh, Dr. Greg Boyd, he describes it this way. He said, in fact, in the Ain, in the ancient Near East, ascribing violence to a God was the primary way you exalted him. To not credit your national deity with the victories of your nation's army carried out on their way to victory would have been considered sacrilege. And the more extreme the violence was that was attributed to your God, the more his stature was glorified. So this is the world that they lived in, where an understanding of, of God in the ancient Near East was, hey, 
Our, if, we, if we won the battle, we're going to say, hey, because our God is a warrior God. That's how people in this world viewed the world, was to have the best warrior God. That's concept number one. Let's go to concept number two. Like I said, we're going to go into some uncharted areas, but we're going to get to where we're going. So concept number two, I want to talk to you about a different lens, viewing things through a different lens. So every one of us, when we open up the scriptures and we start to read the scriptures, we have a hermeneutic, or a better way of saying that would be a way in which we interpret the scriptures. Some people like to say things like, oh, you know, I read the scriptures objectively the way they were supposed to be read. Well, I think we all should strive to do that to the best of our abilities. We all should strive to read them objectively. We all should strive to read the scriptures to the best of our ability. But whether you realize it or not, or whether you like it or not, every single one of us has a lens through which we view the scriptures. Every one of us. You know, an example that I would give is that growing up, I was at times in Pentecostal churches, but then I received some training at an, basically an independent fundamental Baptist ministry. They saw some things in the scriptures very differently, and that affected the way I would see the scriptures. Even to this day, I read so much N.T. Wright. That definitely affects the way that I see and read and view the scriptures. We all have a lens. Some of you, you might have more of a Baptist way of seeing and viewing the scriptures. Some of you might have more of a Methodist lens. Some of you might have more of a Wesleyan lens. Some of you have might more of a Catholic lens of how you see and view the scriptures. Some of you might have more of a Pentecostal lens. Some of you, when it gets more specific, you might have more of a Calvinist lens or more of an Arminian lens or more of a, a dispensationalist lens or more of a covenant lens. There's all these different ways in which we've been influenced and we're all trying to follow Jesus. Jesus and give our lives to him to the best of our ability, but we all have a lens through which we've been impacted and view the scriptures. And we all strive to read them objectively. We all strive to read them to the best of our ability, the way they were written as the spirit of God leads us in reading the scriptures. But we all have things that have impacted us, whether it was in our religious upbringing or books we've read that have, that have impacted the lens through which we view the scriptures. And so I want to advocate this morning for making the cross the lens through which we viewed the scriptures. And to really bring this alive so you don't forget this, I bought these special sunglasses on Zazzle. I put this purchase through on Zazzle, and Neil said, what is Zazzle? I was like, uh, don't worry, I, it's, it's for a message. So I put this, these, these glasses have crosses on them so that we remember to view the scriptures through the lens of the cross. I tried to order these glasses that are shaped like a cross, but they were going to take like two months to come in. They were like custom made. I said, I can't do that. So we got the cross lens. And I would actually say that when we get to the scriptures, that Jesus advocates for the fact that we should read the scriptures through the lens of the cross, including the Old Testament scriptures. Yes, they have their original meaning, but they also have the meaning for the way in which they come alive as we see them through the lens of the cross because they testify to Jesus. So while all of us have our lens, I would argue that the ultimate lens is that we view the scriptures through the lens of the cross, that all the scriptures are actually pointing to the cross and the, and the cross itself will actually more fully reveal the intent of the scriptures as God breathed them and gave them to us. So Jesus says this in John 5, 39. I'm going to try to read with these on. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me. Jesus is saying these scriptures, they speak to me. They, they speak of me. They point to me. They testify about me. He goes on to say this in John chapter 5. He said, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me for he wrote about me. 
the writings of Moses, first Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. These, these are Deuteronomy. These are testifying to me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? After his resurrection in Luke 24, he goes on to say this. And he said to them, O foolish man and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So Jesus is making this point very clear that all the scriptures are pointing to him. So that we should be viewing the scriptures then through the lens of the cross and how do these point to and testify to Jesus. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 2.2, 2, he says, hey, I have chosen to know nothing among you. I've determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul, the guy who knew the law inside and out, he said, hey, the one thing I'm choosing to know is Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was the lens through which we are given to, to begin to see the scriptures and to begin to see the fullness of who God is, that we see that in Christ Jesus. So we could use this term cross vision, that we're going to use a cross vision to see the scriptures. And I described it this way. With cross vision, we begin to see that in laying down his life for his enemies, Jesus is reframing what it means for God to build his kingdom on earth as is in heaven. We see that it is love for enemies that brings transformation, not destruction of enemies. That's what cross vision begins to show us, that it is love for enemies that brings transformation, not destruction. In fact, the authors of the New Testament were so passionate about Jesus being the lens through which we see the scriptures, but being the lens through which we see and view who God is. The author of Hebrews wrote something that would be considered to be controversial in some circles in Hebrews chapter 1. He said this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So when we view the entire story of the scriptures, as the New Testament writers are putting this together, the author of Hebrews says that Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. Jesus is the exact representation of God. Then uh, Paul says in Colossians 1 that he is the image of of the invisible God. It is in Christ that we see the fullness of who God is. We see the fullness of the heart of God, of the love of God, of the sacrificial nature of God, of how God transforms through love, how God calls us to something greater through love. And it's not through destruction, but it's through sacrifice and love. That's why when Jesus stepped onto the pages of human history in, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, hey, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, he's reframing He's showing us how to see what it is that God is doing in the world and how to, how to connect with God and that there's this new movement where it's about loving your enemies and to see that the heart of God, the transformation comes through love for enemies, not destruction of enemies. The, the scholar Jorgen Moltmann says the cross is the key that unlocks the scriptures. So concept number one, to understand how Israel would have viewed gods in the ancient Near East. Concept number two, 
was to re- get a different lens and use the cross as our lens through which we see the scriptures because all scriptures point to the cross. All right? Now, concept number three. This is going to be our longest one, and we're going to get through this, and we're going to make it together. All right? Concept number three. It's the concept of repulsive beauty. Repulsive beauty. That doesn't make any sense. How could something be repulsive and be beautiful all at the same time? We are going to answer that, and we're going to get there in just a moment. But I want to take you back first to our example with my good friend, Neil, where he walked up to this homeless man outside of his favorite store, Target, and he slapped the cup out of his hand and punched him in his face and shoved him on the ground. Imagine for just a moment that maybe Neil was working. I go to Neil and I say, hey, hey, I I saw you do this and I know you, so I know that there has to be something else going on. What if Neil was actually working for a group of people who are starting up a new YouTube channel and they're restarting like a series of the show Punked and they wanted to punk me? And so he's just playing a big prank on me. You see, when I ask a question, when I look a little bit further, I see that something else was going on. Or what if Neil had picked up a second job and he forgot to tell me he's working at UB in the, in, you know, the sociology department with a group of students and the homeless man wasn't actually homeless, but he was a student and they were performing an experiment to see how large, a large group of people would react to somebody beating up a homeless man. What if that's what he was doing? You see, when we look beyond the surface, we see that something else is going on. On the surface, these violent portraits of God, they look ugly, they look disturbing, it's, it's like, uh, what exactly is going on here? Because this doesn't look good. It doesn't look a lot like, it, it, it looks different than Jesus. I don't fully understand it. Well, just imagine for a moment that somebody gave you one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, one of them. And imagine that they gave it to you and you would just try to, try to you know, say to yourself, I've never read this before. Say, you've never read it before. And imagine you're reading it and you're reading it And then it doesn't include the part at the end with the resurrection. It just ends abruptly. You're like, whoa, this is kind of just a really sad story then. It's really ugly. Without seeing seeing the end of resurrection, it's like, this this is actually kind of, in some ways, a repulsive story. Because what happened was, is you have this peace-loving guy who's walking around helping people, looking out for other people, you know, caring for other people, has these brilliant teachings, and then one of his closest friends decides, hey, you know, I'm going to betray him for some money. Hands him over to some religious leaders. These religious leaders then hand him over to their enemies, the Romans, to crucify him. He's then cruci- he's, he's re- all of his friends, like Peter goes off and says, yeah, I don't even know who he is. Like he tells three different people. Peter, the one who said, hey, I'll be with you to the end. He walks, hey, you know, I, I forgot, you know, I, I don't know him. I'm not sure. So he's re- his friends forget about him. He's then beaten, like torn apart. The whip that is used on Je- was used on Jesus would have had stones and little nails in it and would have grabbed onto his skin and ripped his skin right off. The prophet Isaiah said that you couldn't even recognize he was marred beyond human semblance. And then he had a crown of thorns placed on his head. And imagine if that's all that all that happened. You didn't you didn't have the resurrection part. You're like, what's this? Is kind of an ugly, repulsive story. This guy was a good guy who was rejected by his friends, crucified, mocked, spat upon. On the surface, it looks horrible. And the reason it looks so horrible is because you're seeing the fullness of human sin and destruction being played out on Jesus. Look at this, it happens in Matthew 27 as he's hanging on the cross, panting for dear life. 
at his lowest point, being mocked and rejected, says, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. You are the son of God. Come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests, also along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, for he said, I am the son of God. So, so he's in his lowest moment. People are mocking him. What we see is the repulsive nature of the sin of humanity fully playing itself out on the son of God, the sinless son of God. It's, it's without the resurrection, without knowing who God is and the love of God and the love of the son where he said, hey, nobody can take my life from me, but I give it without fully knowing and understanding that. It just looks really bad. But when you understand that there's a beauty behind it, that there's a love behind it, that there's there's a sacrifice behind it, that ultimately there's a resurrection behind it. What on the surface looks repulsive is actually something quite beautiful that we can maybe never even as humans fully understand that type of love. It's overwhelming. It's unbelievable. But the ugliness of what occurred on the cross, even Paul, who years later was writing through the eyes of faith, said this in Galatians 3.13. He said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written... Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He became a curse for us. He became the curse, the fullness of the curse of the sin, the fullness of the curse of destruction, experiencing separation from God, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the surface, it looks ugly, but when you see it through eyes of faith, when you take up a cross vision and understand that there's resurrection behind this, when you see that there's love behind this, what you see is the, what you see is the surface understanding of human sin, which is disgusting and destructive, but then you see this beautiful act of love behind it, and it's this image of this repulsive beauty that doesn't make sense, but it's because God is at work within it. We see him being glorified even in this moment of ugliness because his love is bursting forth through it. This is what we begin to see in the power of resurrection. So how does this all begin to tie in with, with these portraits that we see in the Old Testament when we say to look beyond the surface? Well, on the cross, what we see is God the Father acting towards humanity by sending his son. We see God the Son acting towards humanity by giving and sacrificing of his life but we also see humanity acting towards God. We see humanity acting towards him. So there's the direct action of God and the indirect action of humanity acting towards God in the fullness of sin and destruction as Christ is becoming the curse so that we don't have to become that. It's a rescue mission from him. So we see this revolting beauty where he's acting on us, but humanity is acting on him. And I believe that this actually begins to tie together how we can see the scriptures, how we can see the violent portraits of God in the Old Testament, that whenever God moves in the world, he moves on behalf of humanity. He moves towards humanity. He moves through love for humanity. But in the midst of that, it gets messy because humanity will act towards him. And then it starts to get a little bit messy, but his love will continue to press through even through humanity acting towards him. His love will continue to win the day even with humanity acting towards him. Uh, Dr. Greg Boyd describes it this way. This is going to be a really long quote. I'm going to try to read it relatively slowly so that we can, we can kind of wrap our minds around this a little bit uh, to the best of our abilities. Uh, I'll do my best here. Uh, Greg Boyd said, more specifically, since God's definitive self-revelation involved God breathing his beauty through the ugliness of our God-forsaken sin and condemnation on Calvary, 
So since God's definitive self-revelation involved God breathing his beauty through the ugliness of sin on the cross, and since this is the one and the same God who breathed scripture, he breathed the scriptures, he's given us this word, he breathed the scriptures, and he breathed it for the ultimate purpose of bearing witness to Calvary. The scriptures bear witness to the cross. I submit that we should anticipate that God will at times breathe his beauty through the ugliness of the God-forsaken sin and condemnation of those who he uses to compose the written witness to his covenantal faithfulness throughout history. That is to say, if God breathed his definitive self-revelation on the cross by stooping to take on an appearance that mirrored the sin of the world on the cross, so he stooped to bear the sin of the world on the cross, we ought to expect and even look for God to breathe the written witness to his revelation by sometimes stooping to take on literary appearances that mirror the sin of his people at the time, including the fallen and culturally conditioned ways they sometimes viewed him. And they would have viewed him strictly at times as a warrior God. So he's stooping to that understanding of where they would have been at that time. But then Jesus shows up and in Jesus, we see the exact nature of who God is. And he reframes how we see the scriptures, how we see all of this that is testifying to God. So this is how we begin to, and I'm not going to be able to tie up all the loose ends they do to time. If you have questions, please email me, scottlackey at newstorybuffalo.com. Uh, but here's how we begin to scratch the surface of how, of how we can begin to answer this question. But before we answer the question, I want to I give you four, four concepts that go back to week one of this series and start to wrap up the three concepts that we looked at today. Week one, what we saw is this. God accommodates he will go to great lengths to be in relationship with humanity, even stooping to our own conditioned understanding, our own conditioned limited understanding at times. We saw how he did that with Abraham. We saw how he did that all, all throughout week one. So if you missed that, go back. God accommodates to the understanding of the people because he will go to great lengths to be in relationship with humanity. And here's what we looked at this week. The world that the ancient Israelites lived in was a world of warrior gods. So he's, he's accommodating to that space and to that understanding that they were in. The cross, though, this is concept number three, is the lens through which we are reading the scriptures. Concept number four, on the surface of the cross, it looks repulsive, but God is actually doing something beautiful. He's bringing about love, life, and resurrection. So we take those four concepts, and then we ask our question, that we asked last week and this week. The question is this, how is the one who laid down his life for his enemies one with the one who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? How is the one who laid down his life for his enemies one with the one who commanded Israel to go and slaughter their enemies? And with cross vision, this is what we begin to see. This is how we begin to wrap this up. This is how we begin to see the true love of the Father to go to the greatest lengths, to go to the greatest distances to know you, to go to the greatest lengths and greatest distances to know humanity, to break through even the culturally conditioned mindsets of the people so that they can know him. And, and here's what the cross begins to show us. The one, Jesus, who stooped to take, to take on the repulsiveness of sin is one with the one who stooped to take on the repulsive image of a violent warrior God. 
God does this to remain in relationship and solidarity with the people who he deeply loves. I'll say that one more time. The one who stooped to take on the repulsiveness of sin is one with the one who stooped to take on the repulsive image of a violent warrior God. God does this to remain in relationship and solidarity with the people who he deeply loves. God will go to the greatest length so that, to know humanity and then bring humanity into the life that he has for them. But as we look at Israel time and time again, they were with God, they're far from God, they're with God, they're far with God. So then God finally came on the ultimate rescue mission, stooping to become destruction itself so that we don't have to become that, the destruction of our sin, so that we could be rescued and have life in him. And this accommodating factor of the relational heart of God shows us the love of God to go to the furthest extent possible to rescue us, to rescue you, to rescue me. That when we see this through the lens of the cross, that humanity will act with, with onto God, but God will always act towards humanity with his love. And we cannot ultimately resist his love and his love will eventually win the day. And we see that through that, we can come to know the one who will do anything by all means necessary, even going to the cross to rescue you and me. That's who he is. And I know this gets a little confusing and messy, but it just reminds me of a conversation in Mark chapter 10. We've talked about this conversation a few times here at New Story. But James and John, they come to Jesus and say, Jesus, we want to be with you one day in your glory. You know, we want to sit one at your right and one at your left. Because Jesus said to them, they said, hey, can we do something? Jesus said, well, what do you want me to do for you? They said, well, can we sit one at your right and one at your left? And Jesus looks at them and says, ah, I don't think you guys know what you're asking for. Because from their view, they were asking for royalty. They were asking to be sitting on a throne, one at his right and one at his left, because that's when he would be in his glory, when he was on a throne. But I, I believe that we actually see the moment where he is glorified is when we see this beautiful act of love that is at times beyond human comprehension. Only when it's animated by the spirit of God within us can we begin to grasp this unconditional sacrificial love that he has for us. Because Mark goes on in his gospel when Jesus is hanging on the cross. I, he, Mark is so specific with his language because Jesus is hanging on the cross and look at what he writes. They crucified two robbers with him one on his right and one on his left. I believe the reason Jesus looked at James and John and said, when you're asking to be on my glory, one on my right and one on my left, you don't know what you're asking for. Because when I'm in my glory, it'll be at a spot where there is one on my right and one on my left. But it's at the moment where he is pouring out the fullness of his love for humanity so that we don't have to experience the destruction of our sin. But also in that moment, he is taking on and becoming the sin of humanity so that you don't have to become that. That's the moment where he is most glorified, demonstrating his love towards us and taking on something, the destruction of sin, so that we don't have to. That's how much the Father loves you. That's how much he loves each and every one of us, that he will stoop to the lowest point to take on the destruction of sin so that we don't have to. He will go as far as possible to any space to know you and to be in relationship with you. That's how much he loves you. He will break through any space, any expectation, any lens that you were given in the past to let you know, I love you. And then we allow his love to transform us into the abundant and the full life that he has for us as we become a new creation in him.
Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. As we see that on the cross, we see the love of the Father for us. So if there's one thing I want you to know today, it's this, God loves you. He loves you. And he loves you so much that he sent his son so that you could have new life. And the son did not come into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. Christ came to rescue every single one of us. And that demonstrates the heart of the father to go as far as possible to rescue us and bring us into new life. If you would, please bow your heads and join me for prayer in this moment. Jesus, we thank you that we can have new life in you. And I pray 